Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. These Q&As are a supplement to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel Tucson. If you watch one of our studies or one of our videos on YouTube or on Facebook and you have a question about it, this is the place that you can ask it. Now, you can also ask any question that you have about the Bible, about God, difficult, hard questions about apologetics. Um, I'm not guaranteeing that I have all the answers, but we'll take a look at what the Bible has to say. And our desire is to know what God's Word says. So often we approach the Bible trying to back up what we believe or what our tribe believes instead of looking for what the Word of God says so we can know what to believe. That's our heart and that's our desire. Now, our first question today comes from our last Q&A. And there at the last Q&A, Oh, one, we had several questions that were left, and I went ahead and chose this one from Brendan. Question, if our best works are filthy rags before God, how can the works of the saints make the white linen Christ bride wears? So his basic question is this, that in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride is wearing white linen that are called the works of the saints. So how is it, if our works are filthy rags, that we're wearing fine linen that's made up from our works. Let's go ahead and go to that passage that is um, on uh, in Revelation chapter 19 that is about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's read through here. We'll look at a couple of things, and then we'll go back and we'll look at this um, question again. And I heard, as it were, a voice of the great multitude as of the sound of many waters, excuse me, and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia which is praise Yahweh, or Alleluia. Yah is the, the Yahweh. For the Lord omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now this is that we are supposed to be living our lives. We're to come out from the world and be separate. We're supposed to be living our lives for him. Uh, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do my, you'll keep my commandments. The Bible says, if you say you love him, you'll keep his commandments. And so we make ourselves ready by watching and waiting, by not having our hearts weighed down with drunken and carousedness and the cares of this life, that that day come upon us unexpectedly. We make ourselves ready and we want the, to God to sanctify us. We want to draw near to him. This isn't legalistic. This is a desire to give God the things that we want because one day we'll be at the marriage supper of the Lamb and we want to be ready. Now, the bride is all believers. It's not just the church. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says that the bride is the church. Uh, in the book of Revelation, the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven and it's called the bride. And it's got 12 foundation stones that, are the, the, that have the names of the tribes of Israel on it. Oh, excuse me, 12 gates that have the names of the tribes of Israel on it and 12 foundation stones that have the apostles' names on it. It's made up of, of the church and of uh, Israel and quite frankly, all believers who ever have trusted and believed in him. So his wife has made herself ready and to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen. So God granted us to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine, fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And so there is where we brand, uh, Brendan gets his question. So it is first of all granted to be arrayed in fine linen because we don't deserve that. Secondly, it's the righteous acts of the saints. So you say, if our, if our acts are like filthy rags, then how can we be arrayed in fine linen that are the works of the saints? Let me show you a couple of passages here. Um, I thought it froze for a second. Uh, so this is Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. When we talk about works and salvation, this is one that we usually go to. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then I added verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Jesus for good works. See, this passage is about salvation, not being from works, but once we're saved, he has created us that we would walk in the works, the good works that he has prepared for us. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So as Christians, there are good works. We are not saved by works, lest anyone should boast. But once we are saved, there are good works that we walk in. Why? Because I'm filled with the power of the Spirit. And if I walk in the Spirit, I won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Because God works in me and he's bringing about these good things in my life. Let me show you another passage here. This is James, and you remember that James and Paul are fighting different enemies. Paul's fighting the legalist that says you've got to keep the law in order to be saved. And so Paul says, salvation isn't of any works. In fact, Paul says, if, if you can keep the law and be saved, then Christ died in vain. James is fighting the, the licentious Christian. The Christian who says, I'm born again, and I don't have to do anything. I can sin, I can live the life of my life the way I want to because I'm a Christian, so I've been forgiven, so I'm gonna sin the way I want to. Paul thought this as well when he said, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he said, may it never be. And so uh, James fights them by saying this, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. And I, show, and I will show you my faith by my works. So he says, you wanna show me your faith? Show, show it with, uh, without your works. Because works are the evidence that we have been saved. We are not saved by works and James isn't saying that. He's saying that it's the works that we, have, that we do because we have been saved. And he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. He, he doesn't say I'm gonna be saved by my works. He says, I'll show you my, my faith by my works. Now he goes on and he makes a statement, something along the lines of that Abraham was saved by, by works. But when you read it in context, you realize he's talking about the works that he did once he made a commitment to Christ. So it's not that you and I can't do good works. Really, Brendan, it's not that, that we can't do good works at all. It's that compared to God, our sin is like a filthy rag. I mean, our righteousness is like filthy rags. So we're never gonna be able to get into heaven. No one can be compared to God. Bible says no one is good but God. And yet, the Bible says that Joseph of Arimathea was a good man. So we can speak humanly, as the Bible does, Joseph of Arimathea is a good man, but then there's not one but good but God. So someone would say, well, that's a contradiction in the Bible because God's talking by human standards, Joseph was a good man. And by God's standards, no one is a good person. And so our, our, our righteousness is like filthy rags uh, when compared to God. But there are good works that God created for us to work in and they become the, the fine linen for the bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb which I do believe is at the end of the age, by the way. <clears throat> All right, so I'm um, good to see you guys. Good to have you uh, joining us. If you're new here, really glad that you're here. Um, I hope that uh, the Lord really reaches out and speaks to you. Uh, I got a little bit different um, looking here than it normally does. I'm not quite sure what exactly is going on. Um, I usually get to whether it's on from YouTube or Facebook. Let me pull in one of these questions. We'll see if it changes. Our first question is from Albert, and Albert says, Yep, doesn't tell me this time. So maybe they made some changes in uh, the program that we use here. Uh, they do that from time to time. Uh, Albert says, hello, Pastor. Do you think it's possible that the fiery snakes God used to punish the Israelites in Numbers 21, 6 through 4, were the seraphim? Thank you, Pastor. Huh, that's an interesting, um, that's an interesting thought. So the word seraph means burning. Seraphim is burning ones. Um, and so people have thought that the cherubim and the seraphim are, are the cherubim are the ones that have, uh, that are, are parts of cattle, lion, man, and eagle. And they fly through the heavens crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then there's the seraphim. Um, and snakes are Natash in the Hebrew, serpent is Natash in the Hebrew, but a poisonous snake is seraphim because when they bite, it burns and they are burning ones. So often when we think of seraphim, we think of them as being on fire or, or, or burning. And so then we think, well, that's what the, the seraphim are. But really they're connected to a flying serpent, which makes us think about Satan in the garden However, it says that the serpent, Natash, 
was more cunning than any of the other serpents. Um, I don't think it is possible to look at this text and to have it be uh, the seraphim, but let's just take a look at it and see. Uh, thanks for putting the reference up here so we could look it up. Uh, Albert, I appreciate that. So we'll look at Numbers 21, 6 through 8. Let me go ahead and get there. I'll pull that up for you. <laughs> Numbers 21, 6 through 8. All right, I'll put this up on the screen for you. So here it says, So the Lord sent fiery serpents. And, um, oh boy, you know what I would like to do? I want to pull this up in, let's read this, and then I'll, I'm going to pull it up in the Strong's. Uh, so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, and we have spoken against the Lord and against, uh, and against you. Please pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be everyone who is bitten when they look at it will live. Now what God's doing is giving us an example of the serpents being like sin that bite us. And when you look at the pole, and here we have sin on the pole, um, you're bit by sin, there's a snake on the pole. When you look at sin on the pole, then you are, are, are healed. So Jesus said, as the serpent was raised up in the wilderness, the son of man will be raised up. We are all bitten by sin. Jesus became sin. The Bible says he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. So we look to the cross where his blood was shed, where he became sin, that our sin can be taken away, just as they looked on it as a serpent on the pole, which represented sin, being bitten by sin. So I think that this doesn't mean seraphim. I think it means literally seraph. What I would like to do, though, is pull up my Strong's here and see if, um, let me see if I can find that. It's not where it usually is. Like always, right? Let me just check one thing here. <clears throat> there it is. All right. So I'm going to Numbers 21, 6. 21, 6. I just want to see what word is used for, um, for serpent here. All right. The fiery serpents. So the word is nakash. So I'm going to pull that up here. Um, so the word is not seraph or seraphim. Um, uh, we get all the places that this occurs throughout the Bible down here in the bottom. Um, and uh, I wish I knew exactly um, one place where seraph, seraphim is used so that we could look it up and see all the places in the Bible that it's, it's represented. But um, interesting thought there. Um, Albert, and I don't think that it is. I think that it is literally a, um, a poisonous snake that bites them. And um, as I said, it represents sin. As Jesus became sin, and we look to him, and we find ourselves forgiven. All right. So again, good to see you guys. We have a question from Jari. Uh, Jari says, question, in the new heaven and earth and the millennium kingdom, millennial kingdom, will we eat there as well as the marriage supper of the lamb or only at the marriage supper of the lamb what do you think we will eat uh food probably um i think um yeah i think we'll eat jesus did and the bible says we will be like him and it's not yet known what we will be but we will be like him and so jesus ate food to prove that he was um in in a body and um i think that we'll eat uh there's the marriage supper of the lamb. Um, I don't know that I can prove it, that we're going to be eating throughout all of eternity, but it certainly seems like it. Um, what do you think we're going to eat? Well, green chili, Mexican food, for sure. I, 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 I don't have any idea, uh, Jari, but thank you very much. we got a teaching on the millennium coming up pretty soon. Um, we have a question from Rod. Rod, good to see you. And again, always good questions. Rod says, Leviticus 19, 31, 26, and Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 13. All state for us to stay away from things as an abomination to the Lord. How are we not doing this as trunk or treat? Ah, thank you, Rod. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So, the idea 
that holidays are pagan uh, have come from a book called The Two Babylons by Alexander Hislop. And it's a poorly footnoted book and it makes really weak connections. And we are not worshiping Saturnalia at Christmas or Eshtar at Easter. There's no connection between Easter and, and, or between the word Easter and Eshtar. Easter is a Germanic word that comes over. And so all the holidays got swept into this. And uh, it's been a while since I've looked up the connection to Halloween um, and remembering saints. But there is other than just a wicked connection to it. And so if kids dress up in scary costumes, is that like these abominable things that you're mentioning here? I mean, if we just go, I don't know that I want to go to all of them, but if we go to, um, let's go to Leviticus 19.31. I'm not sure I want to read some of these over the, uh, over here because I'm not sure which ones they are. But let's go to Leviticus 19.31 and just tell, I'll take a look first before I put it up on the screen. Let me see. Give no regard to mediums, familiar spirits, not seek after them to be defiled by them for I am the Lord your God. Yes, yeah, so let's put this up here. Um, so give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits nor seek after them to defile or be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. And so um, if a kid dresses up on Easter, is he giving any regard to mediums? A medium was a person who, who talked to the dead, who would go between it with familiar spirits. That was the idea of calling up spirits and seek after them. So just because somebody <clears throat> dresses up in what would be a scary costume and goes trick-or-treating doesn't mean that that is an abomination to the Lord. That would be the definition of fundamentalism and by fundamentalism, I mean that you take an extreme legalistic position and you hold on to it without any nuances. So instead of saying, is it right or wrong for a kid to put on um, a vampire costume and go house to house? Okay, is putting on a costume sinful? Is putting on a vampire costume sinful? What's the heart of the kid? Do they have a relationship with God? Do they love Jesus as a kid? Are they just going out and get candy? Do they have any uh, maliciousness in what they're doing? So there are other things that are involved in it. And just this broad paintbrush that just takes everything and paints it as being evil and that a Christian can't be involved in it because it's pagan, as I said, goes all the way back to Alexander Hislop's book. It's what the Jehovah Witnesses do. And I realize that there are certain, <clears throat> um, certain Christian groups, some cults that do it as well, like the Jehovah Witnesses, that are going to say, oh, this is always wrong. And they use Hislop's book. And Hislop's book was a bad book. And so I, I would rather be nuanced and I would rather say, you know, God probably cares about the real evil that's being done more than a kid who's pretending to be a vampire, which is evil, but puts on a costume for it. God cares more about the real evil that's done. That's what I would have a tendency to say. Now, I, I don't want to speak for God, but I'll, I'll, I'll defend the freedom that we have to be nuanced and not to be massively legalistic because then we just end up being fundamental. And it's, I don't mean fundamental like we believe in the resurrection, we believe in the virgin birth. I mean fundamentalism as taking, again, that extreme position and having only black and white and not having any nuances or any gray at all when what we want to really know is what the Bible has to say. Um, so uh, we could look at one more of these. Rod, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 13. Uh, so let me take a look here. I'm going to look at it first because I do know that these lists can get kind of strange. among you, anyone who makes this. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go ahead and let's let's uh, take a look at this one too. So um, here it says, uh, "There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his sons or daughters pass through fire." This is offering your children to Baal Molech. How is that happening? On by a kid dressing up and going trick or treating, pass through fire with uh, who one who practices witchcrafts and soothsaying. 
if they dress up as a witch, they're not practicing witchcraft or soothsaying to a kid. They're dressing up as something. Um, or who interprets um, omens or sorcerers. So they're not interpreting omens or sorcerers or conjurers or spells or mediums or spiritists. They aren't doing any of that. They're calling up the dead. They don't do all those. For all these things are an abomination of the Lord because of these. Now, it might be okay to be able to say at this point, look, if these things are abomination, should our kids even dress up like a witch? And that's going to be something you have to make up your mind uh, on yourself. And I believe that God gives us those choices. The Bible says that we have, we have freedoms. Uh, in in um, Romans chapter 16, I think it is 14, where it says, um, bear with the one who's weak and don't argue over days and those kind of things. And so you live your convictions. And if you're convicted that um, I'm trying to think, we didn't let our kids dress up as witches when they were, when they were little. We let them dress up, but they, they couldn't dress up in something that was that, predicted something that evil. But I don't look at a kid who's dressed up like a witch and think, what a horrible, awful thing. There's a lot more horrible, awful things happening in the world than that. And I think that this is a red herring that is brought up often. And um, it's not, it's not the thing that God is concerned about. There's a lot more going on, even in the life of Christians, that God is concerned about besides these things. All right. Thank you, Rod. I appreciate it. Um, and I didn't go to Leviticus 26. Uh, just for the sake that you put it in there, let me go ahead and go there. Leviticus 26. And I'll take a look at it. Um, it's the same kind of a thought here. It says, and a person who turns to mediums, familiar spirits, prostitutes themselves with them. Now that's spiritually. I will set my face against that person and cut off him off from the people. And um, again, same thing. That, that no, one's, no one's doing a seance, which I think would be wrong for a Christian to do seances. But no one's doing that when they're dressing up and going trick-or-treating or going trunk-or-treat uh, from place to place. And um, so that's, you know, right or wrong, Rod. That's how I feel about it. And um, hey, who knows? I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. All right. Obviously, I don't think I am. Okay. So, um, appreciate you guys being here with me today. Uh, it's good to see you guys here. We have a question from Gary. Um, Gary, good to see you. Maybe your first time here. Of course, things look different to me. So, I'm not sure what's going on. Gary says, as Christians, what should we do, pray, when we visit grave sites of loved ones? All right. Thank you, Gary. That's a good question. Um, I want to say... Thank you to Keith uh, f um, for being here with us today. I appreciate you moderating here. Um, so, this is a, it's an interesting one. I mean, there's nothing biblically that we are told to do when we go to a grave site. So, my late wife passed away in 2012. And I have visited her grave site a lot. And um, I generally go there and, and do, I do pray, pray for my kids that lost their mom. And I think of her and what kind of person she was. And I think of her in the presence of God. But I don't know that the word should can be used here. As Christians, what should we do? I don't know, you know, I mean, as a Christian, you're, you'd be led by God and you're not going to do anything that's really, that's really wrong. Um, you can sit down there, you can grieve, miss them, and that's all healthy. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to grieve and to, to miss someone that has gone on to be with the Lord. Um, so, or that has, has passed away, a loved one. Um, so I appreciate it. Um, Gary, <clears throat> sorry that I feel like I not have been that helpful with that question, all right? But I appreciate you, and uh, I hope the Lord will really comfort you in your loss, all right? So we have a question from John P. John says, in many places in the Old Testament, the bride is Israel. That's correct. Various Psalms, Jeremiah 33, come to mind. After the resurrection, does this change the church? No, it doesn't. I've read that the church was the body of Christ. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 5, there's a reference there to the church being the body of Christ. It's an analogy being used that we are to love our wives as Christ loves the church. 
Okay, that's the analogy that's used. And then I think in verse 5, it makes uh, another kind of a statement. Ephesians 5, um, let's see if this is where I'm walking love. Is it 6? What is it? No, yeah, maybe. Children and parents. Monsoon masters. Oh my God, where am I at? Where am I at? Uh, let me just go back here to 5 again. Sorry. I'm trying to look for that passage. Um, is this 5? Yeah. Walking light. Walking wisdom. Good stuff here. <clears throat> All right. Um, yeah, here we go. Let me go ahead and put this on the screen for you, John, and uh, let's take a look at it. So uh, it says. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let their wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and, and died and gave himself for her. And I got to think that a lot of women would be willing to be submissive to a husband who's putting the wife first, loving her, caring for her as Christ and dying for her is the way Christ did for the church. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word. This is Jesus giving us the word of God that we can be cleansed by reading the word of God. Um, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle in any such thing, but that she should be holy without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the church. Okay, here's the connection. For we members, uh, for we are members of his body and of his flesh, of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother; the two be joined together, and become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. All right. Nonetheless, let each one of you, um, in uh, particular, so love his own wife as himself. All right. So there's a mystery here of the church and the bride and the the church being the body of christ he's the head we are the body and so that's what you bring up here um the again the new jerusalem when it comes down from heaven and i'm trying to remember exactly where that's at if you see it it's 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 more powerful let me see if it's 20 i think it is <clears throat> um no maybe 21 Yeah, let's go ahead and take a look here, okay? Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth that passed away. Also, there was a, uh, no, no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So, the new city is prepared as a bride. Remember that the woman that rode the beast was a harlot who was a false religious system, but she was also a city, the end of verse 17, verse 18. The woman you saw on the beast is the great city that rules over men, and the bride is a true religion who is also a city that rules over people. So, Babylon is compared to Jerusalem, the wickedness of what Jerusalem is. So, the, this great city coming down from heaven, the new Jerusalem, like a bride adored for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his God, and God himself will be with them, be their God, and will wipe away every tear from their eyes. But there shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, for there shall be no more pain. The former things have passed away. And he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Write these words, faithful and true. Um, the Alpha and Omega. Let me go down here a little bit and see. Um, descending down from heaven. Uh, okay, so we're getting the definition now. All right, here we go. Verse 12. So this is the description of the new Jerusalem coming down, the bride adorned. Also, she had um, great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and then names were written on them, which are the 12 tribes of Israel. So that goes along with what you're saying, John, right? That these gates, and here Israel, called the bride in the Old Testament, then the, and then it says, uh, three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with him had a gold reed and a measured the city. So he's going to go on to give more of a descriptions of the city. The bride of Christ 
is all believers. Old Testament, New Testament, um, the church, the, the nation of Israel, people that were not the nation of Israel who were believers, like um, um, I think it's Naaman the Syrian who came over and believed what Elijah said and was worried about going back and, and he gave him some direction on how you can serve your God because he wanted to serve the real true living God. Every one of them is part of the bride. It's the people of God who are part of the bride. Um, where we got the idea that it's church, I'm not sure. Where we get the idea that it's only Israel, I kind of understand because like you said, the Israel is called the bride often. But then you also have that passage in Ephesians 5, which talks about the church being a mystery, I speak of Christ and the church. So, um, I believe they are all of them. All right? So, um, uh, Joe quoted the wrong verse on, on Wednesday. Uh, sorry, wrong verse on Wednesday. No wonder we were confused. Meant to um, reference Romans 5, 12 through 14. What happened to the souls that did not sin? Okay, let me go ahead and take a look at that. I'm, I'm glad for a change it wasn't me because I know I've looked at passages, read them wrong, and then had to, you know, come back later and say, well, I guess I read them wrong. Well, and I'll say it often. Maybe it's me, right? Because I realize sometimes you're reading something and for some reason you just do not see it. So you're asking what happened to the souls of the dead that did not sin. And thank you for clarifying that. Let's go ahead and put it up here. So this is Romans 5, and I did get the right reference, right? 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, for unto the law sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when though there is no law, nevertheless death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, Oh, those who had, who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. Okay, um, how, let's see, who was the type of him who was to come? And you wanted to go through 14, okay. All right, so let, let's break this down a little bit. Let's take a look at it and see if we can figure this out. Therefore, just through one man, sin entered the world. That's Adam. So everyone has sinned from Adam onward, regardless of the law that revealed sin, Okay. So sin entered the world through Adam, and all of us have had a sin nature, so there hasn't been anybody who hasn't sinned. And death through sin. So because we sinned, now we die. Before that, we wouldn't have died. They would have lived forever. They would have eaten the tree of life and lived forever. But because they sinned, they were barred from the tree of life. And thus, death spread to all men. Because sin had spread to all men. So we all die. Because all sinned. So there it is, all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed where there is no law. So the question here is, what does it mean by imputed? That the sin was not imputed. Paul said, I wouldn't have known that sin was sin if, except for the law. The law said not to steal, so then I knew not to steal. So Paul's talking about the law being used by God to reveal to me what's wrong. And the imputed here, I think, is that we know what is right or wrong all the way around. I think we've got a general sense of, of what's right or wrong. And I think that Romans 1 tells us that. Nevertheless, death reigned. Even though whatever not having a law, whatever, whatever the law added in condemning people and they were under the law without it, not having sin imputed to them, whatever that means, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, which means they sinned and they died. Even more, those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So they didn't do what Adam did, but they did sin. They had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. So they didn't sin in the li his likeness, but they did sin. And death came into the world, even though what they did wasn't identical to Adam. All right? So, Joe, I, th I think that that's the case here. And... Um, that there's no one who doesn't sin, but he's talking about the law in Romans. And um, we are, we are going to get into Romans here pretty soon, and we're going to dive in. And there's a lot there, <clears throat> and it's really good stuff. Um, but the law was given to reveal sin and to show us that we have sinned and to take away any excuses for sin. So that I, I could say, um, I, I like what Ray Comfort does. He goes on the streets, and he's with Living Waters International, 
he goes out on the street, just dumped water on my keyboard. Um, he goes out into the street and he ends up asking people, have you ever told a lie? Ever stolen? You ever had a lustful thought? You ever taken God's name in vain? And then after getting affirmatives on these, and some people balk a little bit. Like I remember one time a guy was with his wife and, and Ray Comfort asked him, have you ever, you ever lust after a woman? And he looked at his wife, he said, no. <laughs> Ray Comfort goes, you've never lusted after a woman? He goes, well, yeah. And, 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 and he said, well, Jesus said, if a man lusts after a woman, uh, he's committed adultery in his heart. And then he says, so you're telling me you're a lying, thieving, blaspheming adulterer. And in the afterlife, when you're judged, what will you be? Is it heaven or hell? And most often people will say hell. Sometimes they'll balk against it, but most often they'll say hell. And so that was the purpose of the law. And that's what Paul's getting at in the overall picture of Romans chapter five. And so what is the difference between someone who sins without the law and someone who sins with the law? And he uses the word imputed there. And I would need to dive into the word a little more. It's been years since I've taught the book of Romans. And so I would need to dive into what that word imputed there is. But I think the key is there, uh, Joe, I really do. All right. So um, we have a question from um, Henry. Henry Jones says, um, in your recent study, the people of the earth cursed God for a particular judgment in Revelation. Right. It was um, the hail. Was that it? They cursed God for the hail because that was particularly bad. But aren't they worshiping the Antichrist? How do they acknowledge God but worship Satan? Yeah, I think this is, I think this is good. I think um, it points out an inconsistency that, hey, I believe that everyone really does believe in God, even though they say that they say they don't. Now, if I'm talking to an atheist that's here and he says, I don't believe in God, I'm not going to say to him, oh, yes, you do. You really do. You're just lying. I think there's something inside of them that they know. They may be fully convinced and be honest that they don't believe that there's a God, but I think there's something inside of them. And these people that had worshipped the Antichrist knew that God was doing these things. For example, you'll talk to someone who's angry, um, who's, who's an atheist, and they're angry at God. They'll say things like, like, I hate God. Uh, you know, God's never done nothing for me. But that's not the statement of someone who is an atheist. That's the statement of someone who's angry at God. And so you find these inconsistencies often. Like, for example, why does an atheist care? Like you've got the new atheists like Dawkins and Sam Harris, Hitchens, uh, and they just are out after Christians. What, what do they, if, there, if there's no God, what does it matter? If there's no God, then there, then there's nothing. We have no purpose to live. Life is, life is absurd. It, it results in nihilism in the end, if there's no God. So what do they care what I do? We just go out and do what you do until you die and go to nothing because that's what atheism teaches. And there's no reason to believe in anything. And so even though these people were worshiping the Antichrist, I don't, it doesn't mean they were doing it sincerely. They had to do it in order to take the mark of the beast. But they were angry with God. And I think that everybody does know there is a God. I think it is in there. So Rod says, um, a follow-up on our Halloween question. Rod says, I understand your point, but lieu of the movies that Disney is putting out, should we take cl a closer look? Aren't they promoting the things God is against? Now, the movies that are coming out by Disney are, are a, a different case than what we're talking about if a child dresses up as Cinderella and goes next door, okay? This is a different case because they've been propagandizing for years and they are continuing to propagandize. Uh, culture has been a frog in boiling water for a while so that every show had to have somebody who was same-sex attracted every show for from the 80s on and then it got a little worse and then and, and, and if you notice Hollywood and not inclu Disney included but Hollywood has a world where there is no God where the only time they bring up God is to curse him this is um, this is 
affecting our culture. And Disneyland, um, Disneyland, Disney understands that they can change the heart of kids and they are propagandizing. And I think it's all out wicked for them to propagandize. I do. Now, if you have, have your kids watch Disney, I would just say be careful, watch it with them, answer questions. But as far as what Disney's doing, now, Rod, yeah, I mean, as far as taking a second look at whether or not kids should go and and from from house to house and or, or trunk to trunk, um, saying trick or treat, that's something for each individual to make. Um, whether you should watch Disneyland, uh, Disneyland, Disney movies is another thing for you to make. I, I have no interest in it anymore. I I get really tired of every time that I watch a movie watched a, a newer movie made in 23 here recently and had to have the same old stuff in it. And, you know, the person's going through this horrible thing and there's no God in it. It's just the same thing that comes out of Hollywood again and again and again. And I do think that is propaganda. I do think they're trying to affect the world. All right. So thank you, Rod. I appreciate that. I appreciate the follow-up question. Um, I always think, I mean, these things are always important for us to ask, should we be doing these things? I really do. So we have a question from Melissa. Melissa says, um, question, is calling God Jehovah okay? Is it the same as calling him God, the Father and Yahweh? The reason I ask is because Jehovah Witnesses speak to you, they address him as Jehovah. Right, because they believe that that's the revelation of his name. <laughs> the funny thing is, Hebrew scholars, which I am not one, but I'm referring to Hebrew scholars, and the one Hebrew scholar that I'll send you to is Michael Brown. Dr. Michael Brown, he's got a Q&A, um, he's got a podcast, uh, and again, he's a, he's a Hebrew scholar, okay? Um, they're obviously, whenever I recommend someone, there are things I don't agree with them on, but they're not essentials, all right? There are things I do agree with them on. And um, so he'll tell you that there is no, well, I don't know if he's gonna tell you there is no J sound. He's gonna tell you that the Y sound is a Yah not a, a Jah, not a J. And so we know it isn't Jehovah. Um, the, new, the King James Bible, and the New King James takes it from that, took the vowels from Adonai and the, the tetragrammaton, the four letters that make up the Y-H-W-H, yad he wad he or yah he vah however you want to pronounce it, and they put in the consonants of Adonai and came up with Yehovah, or as the Jehovah Witnesses say, Jehovah, which it would not be pronounced that way. A better translation is Yahweh. Now you also get these Yahe Wahe, that that's breathing, Yahe Wahe, Yahe Vahe, that's breathing. And I love my Michael Brown just says, stop it. That stuff is just done, it's not true. That's not, you weren't, you weren't breathing when you were saying the name of God. And I, and I like that he does that. Um, but the vowels of Yahweh according to, again, Hebrew scholars, are, are much better. I've heard them say that we think we, we don't know how God's name is pronounced, but kind of like today, there's only a few ways in which things could be pronounced in Hebrew. And we know it a lot better than what people think. Um, but of course, we don't know for sure because the vowels have been lost. So we don't know. So yeah, I... Um, I, I have no problem with calling um, God Jehovah because it wasn't the Jehovah's Witnesses that came up with it. I have a problem with where they go with it. It's just try to say, you've got to say Jehovah, you're not really serving God. And that's their revelation. So many things that are whack with the, the revelation of what the Jehovah's Witnesses have and what, <clears throat> and what they've got in their Bible and how they've rewritten their Bible over and over and over again. All right. Um, so... Ah, good to see you guys. Um, and um, interesting new look with um, our comment section here, for me anyway. So, um, WMB, 1977, F, uh, Iffy. Question, what characteristic does the Pope, what characteristics does the Pope for as Antichrist? Okay, I'm going to make a, take a guess here. What characteristics does the Pope have that are like the Antichrist? Well, I'm, I'm going to be a bad person to, to do this with because 
I don't, if the Pope is the Antichrist, it is the Catholic Church without any of the genuine Christians in it. Catholicism has the basics for what Christianity is and, and, and the, the foundations for what's right. There are plenty of things that are wrong that are tradition, but you can be a Catholic, believe in Jesus, and be saved. Have a genuine relationship with Christ. I believe that all Christians will be taken out, then the Antichrist comes on the scene. And so, whatever the Pope would be doing, it would not be with any genuine Christians in, in, in Catholicism. I don't think the Pope is Catholic. That is, again, that comes from uh, a, a belief that Christianity had a couple hundred years ago and um, that Alexander Hislop wrote in his book, The Two Babylons. It, the subtitle is, you know, Why is the Catholic Church the Horror, horror of Babylon? So, I, I don't believe it. Um, I don't believe his book. Uh, could it be? Maybe. You know, but it could be the Protestant part of the Protestant church too with real Christians being taken out of the way. It could be Islam. It could be the Mahdi. It could be, there's a lot of things that the Antichrist could be. Um, we don't know. It's a mystery now and we are not sure. Um, I think because the mark of the beast, Nero's name in, in Greek um, adds up to 666 and 616, which both are in, are in the 616 is in early manuscripts. 666 is what we have in our Bible. They both add up to that. I think he's a Roman emperor. And I think that was the connection from the 666. Now again, people have their own opinions on what it is. I'm not saying I'm 100% right, okay? I'm just saying that's what I think, all right? I, that's where I'm at from looking at the scriptures, making a, a, a scripture-educated guess. That's where I'm at with who the Antichrist is, all right? So, we have a question from Kimberly Fox. Kimberly, good to see you. Kimberly says, uh, question, is there a difference between demons and the devil? I read that, that uh, devils are fallen angels. Demons are the disembodied souls of Nephilim. Do they mingle together or do they differ in powers or goals? So, the Bible says that we don't wrestle against principalities. Let me... Um, yeah, the Bible says we don't wrestle against prince, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and a spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. And so we've got these different rankings of demons. I I think that the sons of God were angels, and I don't know whether they in in Genesis chapter six whether they could manifest with a body to be able to to mate with women or whether they possessed somebody to mate with them. And I believe the Nephilim were their offspring. But I don't know if demons are the disembodied souls of the Nephilim. Um, I'm not sure where this idea comes from. Obviously, there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that. And I do think that there are some writings that can't be trusted that tell us that. I, what we do know is that a third of the heavenly host fell and that there are principalities and that the devil was one of the main angels in heaven. And you look at that through Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 and you get the characteristics of, of the devil who is the accuser. That's what the word devil means. So he's the accuser. He's Satan. He's the serpent. He's the dragon in the book of Revelation. Um, I would rather, my take on it, Kimberly, is that they are, they are fallen angels and they're the different rankings of angels and that they do mingle together and they're kind of like self-destructive because of their nature. They're fallen, like we're fallen, and so they have a different nature than the angels that are in heaven. And I think their, name, uh, their nature is very selfish. I, I look at it kind of like the Lord of the Rings and the orcs. The orcs just kind of fought against themselves all the time. And I kind of see that. I think that's kind of the way it is. Again, I'm making some leaps here and I realize it. And, um, but um, yeah, I think that, but I do think there's organization and there's rankings. Jesus said, that if the, if the devil fights against himself, then the kingdom's divided. A kingdom divided can't stand. So it tells us that there is some organizations that we have within the demonic realm. 
and I believe that's what they are. All right. Um, I'm not sure who here recently uh, believes that the demons are disembodied souls of the Nephilim. I'm not sure if Michael Heisler did. He recently passed away. Or if Tim Mackey from the Bible Project does. Um, but I, I would need to see something in the Bible that would make me think that rather than something from wherever else this has come from because we don't have anything in the Bible that would say that. All right, Kimberly. So thank you for your question. Welcome uh, for welcome to give a follow up. If um, I didn't answer your question sufficiently, which is possible, um, dry as a follow up. Um, if God can have two brides, why can't Israel and the church? Why why aren't they? It's not two brides. It's one bride. So yeah, it's it's not polygamy forever with God as two. Remember. The system of worshiping God in the Old Testament was presented as a woman who was a who's a wife for God and sometimes a bride, betrothed. God would talk about her. So this is an analogy of a religious system that is a woman. Then you have the false religious system who is a harlot that rides the beast in Revelation 17. Then you have the bride who is the true religious system throughout all of time who has a relationship with God. And it's not the church and it's not Israel. It's Israel and the church and every believer. And I think that's the third time in this Q&A that I've said that. But I understand, you know, some people are just catching different parts of it. The, the, the bride is Israel, the church, and every true believer that's out there. And they're represented as a woman because religious systems in the Bible are represented as women. False in the Revelation chapter 17, true in the Old Testament, uh, true in the book of Revelation with the bride and the marriage supper of the Lamb. All right, Jerry, thank you very much. I appreciate your question. Uh, thank you. Um, and let's see. I'm just looking for the next question here. <clears throat> if you're here for the first time, really glad to have you here. Um, if you have a question, you can write the word question down and then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, add any references. We're able to look them up, as you can see, and take a look at them. We have about eight minutes left. Um, we have a question from Abishag. Abishag says, can you help me understand Calvinism? Well, I mean, I'm going to be accused of not understanding Calvinism no matter what I say, just so you know. Um, I heard a particular call um I have a preacher claiming we have free choice as long as we as we choose what we are predestined to choose. Faith is works. I'm confused. Yeah, I'm confused with that too. Um, free choice as long as we choose what we are predestined to choose. Predestined to choose. So that's yeah. I, I I'm not quite sure what what that is. Um, so there's a lot of aspects of Calvinism. Um, basically, Calvinism. And the Calvinism of today is a particularly extreme form of Calvinism. There are individuals that I know that are, I really respect that have a very soft Calvinism instead of one that's very rigid. And the one of John MacArthur and John Piper is very rigid. They believe in determinism, that God is the one who determines everything to happen. And when you ask them, well, does that make God the, the maker of evil? They say, well, we know that God's not because God's good. And so there's a mystery as how God can determine something that's evil. He determined it to happen, but God's good. And so he, by him determining it to be happening, it's God did, didn't, it didn't sin or didn't do that or somehow because of mystery, but they can't tell you how. They, they say that someone can't be saved, but God says, choose you this day whom you can serve. But then they can't serve them because they're totally depraved, which doesn't just mean full of sin. It means unable. They're dead-like corpses that are unable to respond to God. And if you're a dead-like corpse unable to respond to God, how can God punish you for all of eternity or in hell for not um, following him? If a two-year-old, and I think I used this analogy the other day, if I tell a two-year-old to go out and start, start the car and back it out into the driveway, and then I punish that two-year-old because they can't do it. What kind of a person am I? So if God tells somebody to do something, like let men everywhere repent, the Bible says, 
and they can't, so he's going to punish them for it, then what kind of God does that make? And they say, well, that can't be wrong because God's good and everything God does is good. No, God is good and can only do good and will always do good. And if what your representation of God is, is not good, then I'm going to reject it. They've got what God does, like I do Calvinism. So, not even sure what, what he's trying to say here uh, about free choice as long as we choose the predestined to choose from. Uh, faith is works. Um, yeah, and then the faith is works thing, yeah. They're, so, th what they say is that faith is meritorious, okay? That when, when that I'm going to brag because I believed and that person next to me didn't. Hey, look, I didn't do anything to be saved. Jesus did it all. And he, and he handed out salvation. And I took it. And that's not meritorious. That's not works. That's just receiving. In your, in the Calvinist thinking, they're better than the person that wasn't chosen because they don't know why. They'll say, well, we don't know why God chose. God, for his own purposes and his own time, chose some to be vessels of honor, some to be vessels of dishonor. So you were the chosen one. And, and how do you know that you maybe you're a vessel of dishonor and you just think you're a vessel of honor? You won't know until the end. You might be a vessel of dishonor, for all we know. You say, well, if I believe, then it proves that I'm a vessel of honor. Yeah, but you got to believe to the end. What about people like John MacArthur's assistant who became an atheist, or Billy Graham's assistant who became an atheist? Those guys followed God for a while. I assume John MacArthur's uh, assistant pastor was a Calvinist, and he left. You say, well, he left because he wasn't part of us. Well, then how do you know you're chosen and you're not going to leave? The position of a Calvinist to me is a position that doesn't know for sure whether or not God chose them. But I know that anyone who believes in him will be saved. And so if I choose to believe in him and genuinely live for him, then I'll be saved. You say, well, how do you know you won't leave in the end? I do have to endure to the end, right? Those who endure to the end will be saved. But we have to endure all the way to the end. So hopefully that's helpful. If you have more specific questions about Calvinism, um, I would I'd love to be able. I would love to take them and talk about it. All right. Um, I I don't throw Calvinists out of the kingdom. I don't think that they are non-believers. I think they are believers. Um, I just think uh, they are looking at the Bible in a in a set of in a, through a theology that is just wrong, and um, that you cannot in any way. Um, uh, start to believe it. So we have just a couple minutes left here. We have a question. Um, who is your, in, in your opinion, is the, um, what's your opinion on the Antichrist? Um, so I'm not quite sure. Uh, and I'm sure, I'm not sure I didn't pronounce your name, by the way. So that's why I didn't pronounce it. But thank you for your question. Um, I, I think it's either a Roman empire or, or excuse me, a Roman, a revived Roman empire with a Roman emperor who is the Antichrist, or it is a revived Roman, Roman Empire through Constantine, which was the eastern part of the Roman Empire, which now is Islam, and that Islam is the beast with the seven heads, and that the Mahdi is the Antichrist. I, um, when I first heard that, I was reluctant, and I'm skeptical anyway, so that just makes sense. But the more that we study the Antichrist and who the beast is and what the Bible says about the Antichrist, for example, it says that Babylon's destroyed and its smoke goes up forever and ever. And then it says that Edom in the Old Testament is destroyed. Isaiah, I'm not sure where it's at, but you can just look up Edom's destruction in Isaiah. And then it says that the smoke goes up forever and ever. Edom is in Saudi Arabia which of course is controlled by Islam. Now there's Shia and there's Sunni, so there's a lot going on there. But the more I look at it, the more I go, this could be it. And people I respect like Skip Heitzig and Joel Rosenberg um, believe that it is actually Islam that, that the Antichrist comes out of. Um, remember the Roman Empire was broken up into two parts, Constantinople, Turkey, which today is covered by, which is, is, is controlled by Islam and, um, and Rome. All right, so um, out of time. Sorry about that. Um, follow up of going to live in Jerusalem like a terrible wasteland. Um, 
so let's yeah let's pick these questions up here later on thank you um thank you for them I'll take a look at them and um, have a question for the next one. But I look forward to seeing you guys uh, a little bit later on. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing, Keith, whether or not we've got Facebook and YouTube here or whether it's just one of them because I can't see them anymore. And uh, I might have to, you know what I might need to do? I just might need to update things. Sometimes giving a good old update to something really helps it out. All right. Hey, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you for your questions. Um, I hope that the Lord blesses you. Stay close to Jesus. We have a service here in a little while, about an hour away. I'm going to be teaching out of Acts chapter 8 tonight, and we're going to be talking about um, the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Do you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit after as a second experience, or do you receive all of the Holy Spirit when you get saved? And is there an empowering and gifting of the Holy Spirit um, some churches believe there's not, some, some do. Some believe you receive the Holy Spirit, all of it at, at salvation. Some believe it's afterwards. We'll be talking about all of those things tonight as we see the Samaritans receiving the Word of God. All right, so God bless you guys. Love you. We will see you later on. I am out.